Our verse for meditation tonight comes from Psalm 16, verse 8, Psalm 16, 8. And so I invite you guys to turn there so that we can have our eyes on the text as we meditate on it together. But first, let me pray for us once more. Lord, we do ask you to help us now. Grant to us strength and encouragement through your word. Help us to be built up in our faith. Help our witness to increase. We do ask that you would be glorified by all that comes from the preaching of your word. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 16 is what you pray when you're going to die. And I don't mean it's what you pray if you find out you're dying, like you have a terminal illness and the doctor gives you an actual timeline for death. It's true you should be praying Psalm 16 then. But you also pray Psalm 16 when death is inevitable and could happen at any time, even if you don't know the timeline. That's now. That's everyone. Everyone in this room will die. If Jesus does not come back, you will die. Even the most hardened atheist agrees with that sentence. And that death could come at any moment. So what do you do? You pray like David prayed. Pray Psalm 16. Our verse for meditation tonight is verse 8, which says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. To think through this verse together and why everyone should be praying it, we'll answer two questions about it. Two questions about this verse. David says he sets the Lord always before him so that God is near to him at his very right hand. So how does David do that? How does David set God somewhere? How does David make it so that God is near? What is David doing in verse 8? And then secondly, what is the result of that doing? What does David mean by not being shaken? What is the result of God being near? So two questions to shape our meditation tonight. So look again at verse 8. What is David doing here? I have set the Lord always before me. Setting the Lord before him. And this results in the Lord being at his right hand. Just to say close. God is near. So David is doing something that makes God close. How does David do something that makes God close? How could anyone do anything to make God be near? This is critical because there is a way to draw near to God so that he draws near to you. Not manipulative, but laid out for us in Scripture as what God delights to do. You want me to use this? So what, what, what did David do? How, how did David set God before him? Now there's, there's actually an answer here in this psalm. Think about how verse 8 fits in with the whole picture. Right? You look at the whole psalm and, and you see that verse 8, if you're reading through Psalm 16, verse 8 is a confident restatement of the petition that you find right at the beginning of the psalm. Right there in verse 1, preserve me, keep me, for or because I seek refuge in you. And then from verse 1 to 8, that transforms from a petition into a confident assertion. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Now we'll think in a moment about how the petition changed into confidence. 
But for the moment, the point is, verse 1 and verse 8 help you understand each other. Because they're, they're talking about the same reality. Preserve me, in verse 1, is getting at the same idea as, I shall not be shaken. Preserve me. Don't let me be shaken. And in verse 1, I take refuge in you, is getting at the same idea as, I have set the Lord always before me. To set the Lord before you is to take refuge in Him. And to take refuge in God is to seek God, to seek Him for your peace in this world, to meditate on God in order to navigate life. And that's what David does briefly in verses 2 through 7. All of 2 through 7 is an elaboration on what it means to David to take refuge in God. That's why by the time he gets to verse 8, his petition has turned to confidence. Because, verses 2 through 7, it's the act of actually taking refuge in God. So if you want to know what it looks like to set the Lord always before you, you look at verses 2 through 7. To set the Lord before you, to set God before you, is to think about Him. To meditate on His person in faith. Seeking your peace in Him. Praying to Him. Worshiping Him. And when you draw near to God in thought and prayer, He draws near spiritually. He makes His presence felt. And He acts. He acts for His people. So now, just briefly, we'll consider the specifics. What did David think about? What did David pray and celebrate and meditate on in the course of setting the Lord before him? There are at least four things there that happen between verses 2 through 7. We could maybe parse that into more, but we'll just highlight four briefly. We'll go backwards-ish in the psalm. We see that David, number one, he listened carefully to God's word. Number two, he fled idolatry. Number three, he delighted, he found delight in God's people. Number four, he acknowledged God's sovereign lordship. And all of this is done in a spirit of joyful anticipation for enjoying the goodness of God. Joy in God marks all four of those in the psalm. So just walking through them briefly. David listened to God's listened carefully to God's word. Look at verse seven. He said, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel, and the night also my heart instructs me. David's point is that he listens to God's word. So much so that it is what David naturally meditates on and what comes out of him, even when he isn't reading it. That's what he means by the second line, in the night also my heart instructs me. He doesn't mean, listen to your heart. My heart is a good counselor. Uh, He means, I spend so much time listening to God's counsel, reading and studying his word, that I think about it as I'm falling asleep. I've memorized it. It's like what David prays in Psalm 19. May the words of my mouth and the meditations, the unconscious murmurs of my very being. May they be pleasing to you. David listens to God's word so much that it's bubbling out of him as he falls asleep on his bed. Number two, we see that David fled idolatry. Verse four says, The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. David reminds himself of the sorrows of those who run after other gods. That's a way to rhetorically acknowledge the goodness of God and to give him honor. David doesn't say with regard to religion, what's good for you is good for you and what's good for me is good for me. He says, no, with any other gods are multiplied sorrows. He meditates on the painful end of the path of idolatry and he's not shy about it. And he resolves not to join in to the point that he will not even take their names on his lips. He isn't cavalier about idolatry. David isn't casual about flirtation with non-biblical spirituality and 
other spiritual powers. He wants nothing to do with any of it. He is loyal to the Lord. Number three, David delights in God's people. He says in verse three, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. Obviously, when he says the saints, God's people, are all my delight, he isn't speaking idolatrously. He isn't saying in competition with God. He just said in verse 2, I have no higher good than you, Lord. And so when he immediately says in the next verse that in the saints are all his delight, uh, he's not contradicting that, right? He's saying that he so treasures and values God that he treasures and values God's people in whom is God's spirit. If you love God, you will love his people. Spend time with them and enjoy them. You will enjoy getting to be in the presence of people in whom is the spirit of God. And fourth and finally, David acknowledges God's lordship, his sovereign rule and control over his life. Look at verses 2 and 5. Verse 2, I, said, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I say to Yahweh, you are my Lord. And verse 5, you hold my lot. David is simultaneously declaring allegiance, but he's also confessing there in verse 5 that there really is no other alternative. There's not really a choice. To acknowledge God's lordship is to put yourself under him. There's volition there. There's commitment. But it's also to confess that he holds your lot, to recognize that regardless of whether I submit to you as Lord, you control my destiny. So in recognizing God's sovereignty, the Christian response, the setting God before you in such a way that he draws near to you, is both to acknowledge God's control of your destiny and to willingly put yourself under his lordship as far as your actions and choices are concerned. And we, we, we often buck against that, especially in Western individualistic society. I am the master of my destiny. There is no lord over me. But God's sovereign control and his lordship are actually a good thing for you. Remember, all of David's meditations here are done in a spirit of joyful anticipation for enjoying the goodness of God himself. Joy in God marks all four of these things in this psalm. And that includes David's acknowledgement of God's sovereignty. David doesn't acknowledge God's sovereignty begrudgingly. Look at how David responds to it. I say to Yahweh, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you or no higher good. God is his good. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. God is his choice. God is the portion that David wants. And of course he is. Look at what God does with his sovereignty. Look at the choices that the ultimate chooser makes in verses 5 through 6. You hold my lot. right? You control the fall of the dice for me. And the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. You control my destiny. And the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Literally, in Hebrew, just pleasures. You control the dice for me, and I hit the jackpot. You control my destiny, destiny, and the lot has fallen in pleasures. That's the destiny you have for me. I have a beautiful inheritance because God is my portion. I'm going to get God. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It is good for you that God is the sovereign ruler of your life and not you. Because you want ultimate pleasure and you'd ruin it. You would muck it up 
You would destroy any chance of having full and lasting pleasure if you ran the universe, or even if you just ran your own life. But God controls everything, and his destiny for his people is pleasures at his right hand forever. Bucking against God's sovereignty would be like me being angry that I'm not in charge of maintenance on the plane that I fly on. Why does the mechanic get to decide everything? That isn't fair. That offends my autonomy. Well, you do not have the technical competence, the the learning, the innate mechanical intelligence, the experience, or the engineering know-how in order to take care of this plane so that it reaches its destination. And you definitely don't have the knowledge, wisdom, power, or skill to run your life so that you reach ultimate satisfaction and fullness of joy. But Yahweh is Lord, and he is taking his people to joy in his presence. So David meditates on that. He confesses allegiance to God. He acknowledges his sovereignty. He delights in being together with God's people. He reads intently in God's word, and all of this puts God before him and has the result that God draws near. God delights to draw near to those who trust him. Because God is at David's right hand, it says in our verse, David will not be shaken. It's now part two of our meditation. What does that mean? What does it mean that if God is near to us, that we will not be shaken? There's no logic. Because you are at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Now, he doesn't mean what modern English means by the shaken language, like that shook me up, or I was shaken by that experience. He does not mean I shall not be distressed or shocked or reeling. Those are feelings. Uh, in modern English, being shaken, being shook up, that's a feeling. Startled. David is not talking about feelings here at all. In fact, the word for shaken here is relatively rare in the Hebrew Bible overall, but it's fairly common in the Psalms and the Proverbs. It's also there in Isaiah. And it's, it's literally a movement word, swaying, moving back and forth, shaking. Isaiah uses it fairly literally to speak of an earthquake. The earth shakes, it moves. But it is mostly used figuratively to describe being removed, being taken away. It's often used in the sense to fail in something or even to be destroyed. And in fact, interestingly, even, especially when you think about how it's used in the poetry of the Psalms and even in this verse, this Hebrew word is a homophone with the Hebrew word for death, to die, meaning they sound the same. They're not spelled the same, but they sound the same. To say, I will not be shaken, sounds almost identical to saying, I will not die. David's not talking about feeling distressed. He's talking about dying being destroyed, being removed forever. You can see that with how verse 8 moves forward, how it relates forward. Look at verse 9 briefly. Therefore, verse 9, because I will not be shaken, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. So verse 9 is a response to the truth of verse 8. David celebrates in verse 9, because of the truth, I will not be shaken. My heart is glad. But then look at verses 10 through 11 and how they relate to verse 9. He says, My heart is glad for or because you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So you see 
how David's joy in verse 9, his heart being glad, it's grounded in both verses 8 and verse 10 and 11. David's heart is glad because he's not shaken, verse 8. But David's heart is also glad because you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, verse 10. In poetry, verse 9 is what we call the jan- a janus. In logic, we call it a bilateral proposition. Verse 9 joins both 8 and 10 together in a particular way. In other words, verse 9 lets you see that verses 10 through 11, they're an elaboration. They're an explanation of what it means that David is not shaken in verse 8. Verses 10 through 11 are telling you what he means. The shaken David is talking about here is not being abandoned to Sheol, the Hebrew word for the grave. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. You make me know the path of life. At your right hand are pleasures forever. Not just for 40 more years, forevermore. That's what it means to not be shaken. David starts the whole psalm by crying out, Preserve me, keep me, guard me. From what? From the grave, from the pit. Help me, I'm going to die. I don't want to die. I want to know pleasures at your right hand forever. Then he says in verse 8, I will not be shaken. You will not abandon me to the grave. David is confident by the end of the psalm that God will preserve him through life and beyond. God will preserve David past death. That's why you've got to pray this too. You're going to die. You need someone to get you through not just this life, but death too. Now hold on. What about Peter? Peter quotes this in Acts 2. We heard it in this morning. Peter quotes this psalm and he says that David prophesied about Christ. That this, this psalm was a prophecy about Christ. Jesus was not abandoned to the grave. Jesus did not see corruption. Peter says David was talking about Jesus. So if all this is about Jesus, how can we say that we should pray it? Or that we can hope in its promises? Just to say, if verses 9 through 11 are indeed the whole, and indeed the whole psalm are a prayer and prophecy of Jesus, where does that leave David and us? Does that mean God will abandon our souls to the grave? Quite the opposite. It's actually because of Jesus that this is a truth and a hope for us. You see, David, he wrote this psalm, he wrote this prayer, and we know that David knew he was going to die. The prophet Nathan told him explicitly, you're going to die when you're gathered to your fathers. David knew he was going to die, but he also knew he was going to have a descendant that would defeat death and end the seemingly never-ending succession of kings. You, you read how Nathan speaks, particularly in First Chronicles. Nathan told him that. David was told one of his descendants, singular, would have an eternal kingdom. Not you would keep having descendants on the throne, but eventually one of your descendants would have an eternal kingdom. That is, eventually there would be a king from David's line that brought God's kingdom so fully to earth that death would be no more. David knew there would be a holy one, a Messiah king, who would not see corruption. And though he may not have known how, he knew that somehow his own personal hope for resurrection and life beyond death was tied to that future So David prayed Psalm 16, looking forward to the Messiah, tying his own future to that, even if he didn't quite know how it all worked together. And Jesus, son of David, died but rose from the dead, not abandoned to the grave, never even decaying. He was untouched by the corruption of the grave because he was swallowed by death and he destroyed death from the inside out. Jesus is the first fruits. 
so that now what was only true of him and only could be true of him in and of himself can now be true of his people in him. The Holy One who didn't see corruption is the king that David knew about who brought God's kingdom in a permanent way so that all the citizens of his kingdom would be saved from the grave. That's implicit in the promise that David received from Nathan. If there would be a singular offspring who would establish a forever throne, he would need to defeat death for himself and he would need to defeat death for his citizens. And David looked forward to the promised offspring who would defeat death himself and for his people, including David himself. If you're a citizen of Jesus' kingdom, you will share in his victory over death so that you too can pray Psalm 16. You pray it after Jesus. Jesus did the impossible part that you couldn't. He beat sin and death so that now you can pray this. So now Jesus, King Jesus, is like the shepherd, like the great ruler, like the loving parent leading you in prayer. Here, repeat after me. God, you will not abandon my soul to corruption. You will be distressed in this life. You will be shook up, shaken in the modern English sense. You can't stop that. But oh, how small those distresses will be if you will not be shaken in the biblical sense, if you will not be destroyed, if death will not beat you. So you set Jesus before you as king, the king who beat death, and you repeat after him. I've set God always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you. We thank you for your Holy One. We thank you for Jesus' victory over death. And we thank you that now in him we can pray Psalm 16 after him. Grant that to be true of every single person in this room. May we not be shaken. May we not be removed. May death not have the final word over us. We ask this all in Jesus' name, totally dependent on his resurrection power. Amen.